what are you doing? Pelagia Avanti of the Proud Mende tribe. My good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nyanda. And the new baby. Cows wait for you, and Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. Come home with me and be my son again. Well, that's where we left off last week. And I thought that's a pretty good place to begin this week. Uh, you'll remember that Dia had been kidnapped, lied to, made to do bad things in order that he would think he was a bad uh, boy and do more bad things in service of the evil warlord that held him prisoner. And you remember that that was how his father found him and set him free with his word. <laughs> Such a great clip. I, could, I've showed it to you a bunch. I could show it to you every week. And he set him free with his word. But Dia had a choice to live in the warlord's world or to live in his father's world. This is my father's world. Or is it somebody else's world? How is Dia to know that his father's word is true. How's he to know that his father's story is true? You are a good boy. I'm your father who loves you. You will come home with me and be my son again. How does Dia know which story to believe and which world to choose? How is Dia to know? How are you to know? the good and the evil. How did David know? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would speak to each of us. Uh, Father, um, your word is so astounding to me, uh, so amazing, and uh, Lord, I know that I can't put all the pieces together, I can't make you work. So I pray that you would make us work, that you would speak to our hearts through the power of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would create in us faith. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 18, that's what we're looking at today. Um, how is David to know? That was the question I asked. But Psalm 18 is, is long. And it wasn't meant to be recited or sung in little chunks. So this morning, I want to read all of it, but we're going to have to barrel through it, so fasten your seatbelts, okay? Psalm 18, this is the title. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, Rechem. It's a very affectionate Hebrew word, I love you. It's not simply what David knows he should do. It's not simply what is good. It's what David feels, desires, and wants to do. Love God, who is the good. And check this out. This is the only place, at least in my English Bible, where someone says to God, I love you. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Now, David had a lot of enemies. And that's what makes the title and the setting of this psalm so confusing. Uh, it claims that this is uh, what David said to God on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hands of Saul and all his enemies. Well, if you know the story, you know that David was delivered from Saul a whole bunch of times and delivered in all sorts of crazy ways, but Saul tried to kill David up until the day that he committed suicide on Mount Gilboa, and David did not greet that news with joy, and David still had lots and lots and lots of enemies the day that Saul died. And in fact, he had lots of enemies his entire lifetime on the surface of this, of this earth. So commentators have been really puzzled as to the day when the Lord delivered David from the hand of all his enemies. This is especially true in light of the way David describes that day. It makes us wonder, what world is David living in? I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death, mavat, that's death personified. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, the cords of hell entangled me. The stairs of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. Now, we have no record of an earthquake in, in David's story. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. And we sure don't have any record of this in David's story. I mean, this sounds like God giving the law to Israel on Mount Sinai. Verse 13, the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and 
coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the clouds and the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Is this how God delivered David from Saul? I mean, it reminds us of how uh, God delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt, right? And maybe even how God created all things, but David's friends must have thought, hey David, you know, we were there in that cave of Dolom with you. I, we don't, what, what world are you living in? Then the clouds of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me up out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. So anyway, David thinks the earthquake because he said a prayer. He thinks the channels of the sea were opened. He thinks the foundations of the earth were laid bare. He thinks God bowed the heavens and came down with thick darkness under his feet, speaking coals of fire. And, and folks must have thought, what world are you living in, David? In John 12, Jesus prophesies his imminent death and says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice booms from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The voice had already boomed. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. The voice booms. I've glorified it, and I've glorified it again. And then Jesus said, this voice not the thunder, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of, of this world. Uh, and folks in the crowd said, but it thundered. And they must have wondered, what world is Jesus living in? Only John records that incident, but remember it was John that had the revelation. In the revelation, we saw that spiritual realities intersect our reality all the time. We're like two-dimensional creatures living in flatland who interact with three-dimensional beings that intersect flatland all the time. In flatland, they think it thundered. But for those that had the revelation, they say, no, that wasn't just thunder. That was the voice of the Lord. So anyway, in John 12, there's one set of events. But because folks are telling themselves two different stories, it was like they were living in two different worlds. Physicists now postulate multiple worlds based upon the choices that we make. It's amazing stuff. Philosophers have always argued that we create our own worlds with the assumptions that we make. That is either our faith or our lack of, of faith. Psychologists tell us that what is real in the imagination is real in its consequences. In other words, your world is dependent on the story that you're telling yourself. Uh, Tony Campolo, uh, I remember he used to share about how this all became very real to him one day, one day on the streets of Philadelphia when he found a little boy sitting on a curb crying his, his eyes out. He asked the little boy what was wrong. And through tears, the little boy explained that his mother didn't love him anymore. Tony asked how, how he knew that. 
And the boy explained that his mother spanked him because he talked back to his teacher. And his teacher deserved it. And she spanked him anyway. Tony tried not to laugh. But he explained to the little boy that that did not mean that his mother didn't love him. In fact, it proved that she did. And he said as he explained the story, the little boy's face just lit up. And then he turned around and ran home to tell his mother that he loved her too. You see, his entire world was different. It was a different world. David writes, I called upon the Lord, then the earth reeled and rocked. He bowed the heavens and came down, thick darkness under his feet. He flashed forth lightning, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. Verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Because he liked me. Is that the story you're telling yourself? And is that the world that you live in? In a world in which everything happens to you, the enemies, the victories, the sufferings, everything happens to you because your all-powerful, all-knowing Father likes you and is in the business of revealing his love to you. Is that the story you tell yourself? You might say, well, I've never seen God speak fire. I've never seen the foundations of the earth laid bare. What world was David living in? Well, maybe David was thinking of things that happen in another dimension and intersect this dimension all all the time. Or maybe David was thinking about things that he had heard, which happened in the past, and yet he somehow realized we're all about him. You know, all those things did happen, Right? God did speak into the void, creating all, all things. He parted the sea. He came down on Mount Sinai, speaking fire with thick darkness under his feet and, and coals of fire. Maybe David is thinking, God did all of that for me because he likes me. Do you believe that God did all of that for you because He likes you. He delights in you. Jesus seems to think that God did all of that for him because he likes him. Paul wrote that God has done everything so that we would live to the praise of God's glory in Christ Jesus. And then Paul, John, and the whole New Testament are so audacious as to suggest that this glory, this this brilliant light that is Christ, is in us. Verse 19, he rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Is David arrogant? I mean, it kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? Now let me ask the question this way. Is Dia, in that clip that we just saw from Blood Diamond, 
Is Dia arrogant? To receive the word of his father. Solomon says, you are a good boy who loves soccer and school. If Dia says, yes, I am a good boy who loves soccer and school, is Dia being arrogant? No. I don't think so. I think he's being humble. He's not trusting in the things that he has done. He knows that he's done bad things. He's trusting his father's word, the story that his father is telling. David knows he's done bad things. Psalm 14.3, David writes, there is none who does good. None, not even one. Psalm 16.2, I have no good apart from you. Now Psalm 18.24, he rewarded me according to my righteousness. You see, his righteousness not, must not be a thing that he has done or that he alone has done, but more like something he's been given through the word of his father. And check this out. It's not what he accomplished, and yet he's rewarded for it. Just as Dia will be rewarded for saying, I'm a good boy who loves soccer and school. Dia gets to be who his father says he is. That's his reward. And that's not arrogance, it's just the opposite of arrogance. It's humility. Who has first given a gift to God that he might be repaid, asked Paul in Romans 11. Your reward from the Father is never payment for what you alone have done. Your reward is never payment for any good apart from what God has already given. Your reward is more of what has already been given. Jesus said this, for to everyone who has will more be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is Jesus talking about money? Well, do we have money? Or does sometimes money have us? Is Jesus talking about money, or maybe he's talking about something else, too? Next verse, 1825. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. Hasad from hased, it means relentless love. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. Tamam means perfect. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the arrogant, the haughty eyes, you bring down. David says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With those who love, you show yourself as love. And we know that isn't just a show. That's who God is. God is love. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. We can only be blameless by, by grace. And to be perfect is, is to love, perfect love. With the purified, you show yourself pure. Purity of heart is to will one thing. God is love, and he wills love, and when we will love, we get more love. God's not stingy. Heaven must be like this universe of ever-increasing, absolute, ecstatic, and, and free love. With the loving, you show yourself as love. With the perfect, you show yourself perfect. With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. 
So if God seems torturous, twisted, disagreeable to you, it implies that you're crooked. You don't know God, and you're projecting yourself onto God. Projection is a psychological defense mechanism through which we project our own undesired traits onto another, and then we uh, relate to that person accordingly. You're crazy. I know you are, but what am I? You're a nerd. I know you are, but what am I? You're an idiot. I know you are, but what am I? 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 Infinity. No, I'm not. You are. No way. Knock it off. Cut it out. Oh, shut, shut up, up. Pee-wee. Why don't you make me? Why don't you make me? Because I don't make monkeys. I just trade them. So that's projection. And that's projection on projection on uh, projection. Pretty good example of projection. I think you get the idea. Projection must have been why Adam and Eve hid in fig leaves and trees. When their helper came to walk with them in the cool of the day, in the garden, that they had knowledge now of good and evil, and so they, they uh, projected their own evil. They saw their own evil and projected it onto the one who is pure and perfect love. Projection is why everyone on earth runs from God on Judgment Day. Revelation 7:15. at the opening of the sixth seal, you remember this, the end of the age, and I quote, the kings of the earth and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in caves, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Uh, that is from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb. I mean, it's tragically funny. But in terror, they run and hide from the presence of God, who is a Lamb. <laughs> they hide in Sheol. Do you see, they're projecting themselves onto the Lamb thinking if I was all-powerful, this is what I'd do to a person like me. It wouldn't be mercy. No, I'd torture a person like me. I'd torture him and torture him and torture him. I'd make me pay. To the wicked, Psalm 50, verse 21, God says, you thought I was one like yourself. That's a problem. We project ourselves onto God. The world is constantly telling you a story, and you ingest that story. You think it's your story, and then you project that story onto God. This world says you get what you pay for. But in the presence of God, you realize that uh, you pay for nothing. And you see, that will make you want to be nothing if you get what you pay for. The world says only the strong survive, but in the presence of God, you'll see that you're weak and God is strong. So in his presence, you'll think, I cannot survive. This world says life is what you make it, but in the presence of God, you'll see that you can't make life. Life must make you. Uh, so the life you think you made is an illusion, and you'll try to hide yourself from the light. And this is why it's so important not to sin. Not because you'll break some arbitrary law, but because you'll project your sin onto God and construct a reality that is tortuous. If you lie, you'll be unable to hear the truth. The chief punishment of the liar is not so much that he's not believed, but that he's no longer able to believe. 
The liar comes to believe that there's no such thing as, as truth. And so no one can be trusted, and then he finds himself utterly alone. If you're unfaithful, you'll think that God is unfaithful, and there's no such thing as faith, and you'll begin to despair. If you're unkind, unloving, and unmerciful, you'll think that God is unkind, unloving, and unmerciful, and you'll begin to run from the Lamb on the throne and hide in the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. To the merciful, he shows himself merciful. He is relentless love. To the perfect, he shows himself perfect. To the pure, he shows himself pure because he is pure and perfect, relentless love. But to the crooked, he makes himself seem tortuous just by revealing who he truly is. He is tortuous or, or maybe even torturous to the human ego. For you see, the absolute mercy of God is the end of human arrogance. It's ironic, but the lamb is also the lion. And not because he changes. The mercy is also the consuming fire, and not because he changes. It's the mercy of God that burns away the stupidity of the human ego. In the Chronicles of Narnia, sorry, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this great scene where Aslan sings the entire world. <coughs> into existence. Thank you. It's, I have to sneeze to be blessed. Isn't that weird? But anyway, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this great scene where Aslan sings all of Narnia into existence. And the children are just overwhelmed with wonder and joy as they watch this. But their uncle Andrew can't bear to hear the song of creation. He thinks he's made himself and his world, so can't bear the thought of being made by the lion. He's proud. Of course, it can't really have been singing, thought Uncle Andrew. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, writes Lewis, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. He has made himself unable to hear my voice, said Aslan. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roaring. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. And then Aslan puts him to sleep. In the Old Testament, people in Sheol are said to be asleep. Jesus said, judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see, that's a great description of projection. But we don't only project onto others. We project onto God. And, and so I think this is the most terrifying thing that Jesus ever said. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Why on earth would any preacher of the gospel even dare to threaten anyone with endless conscious torment unless that preacher of the gospel didn't believe the very gospel that he preached? The measure you give is the measure you get. If the judgment I pronounce is the judgment I receive, I want to pronounce Jesus, the Word of God, who is relentless love. 
I want to pronounce relentless love, pure and perfect mercy. Well, anyway, Jesus says it. The, the judgment you pronounce is the judgment you receive. So how do people trapped by death and entangled in Sheol, like David, ever decide to pronounce a different judgment? In other words, how did David get out of hell? Well, I think the word of the Father must have descended into that hell, like Solomon descended into Dia's hell, to speak to Dia and tell him his story. Maybe God allows us to tell our own story, create our own world, so we'd finally get sick of that world and be will, willing to listen to the story that, that he is telling and choose to live, freely choose to live in his world. With the story you tell yourself, you create a world, and that world is hell. Unless, of course, it's your father's story that you're telling. And check this out. Our righteousness is the story that our Father is telling. And that's not arrogance. That's humility. You know, at the cross, we projected our evil onto God and crucified him. That's arrogance in hell. But at the cross, God projected his goodness onto us. That's humility and the kingdom of God our Father. That's the story that he's telling. David continues, verse 26, with the purified you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous, for you save a humble people, but the arrogant, the haughty eyes you bring down, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a, a wall. David still leapt over walls, but he said, well, by God I did that. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God, Eloha, but Yahweh, the Lord, and who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure upon the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness, Anava, your humility made me great. What a line. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. Scripture says that we all battle, but not against flesh and blood. You made those who rise against me sink under, under me. You exposed their necks to me. And those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Whew. Now remember, David is a bronze-aged tribal chieftain tasked with protecting his people from marauding evil warlords. David wasn't perfect. In fact, David didn't know as much of the story as you do. Yet even in his darkness, there was light. David was a lamp, but he knew who lit his lamp. Even in brutal battles, there is courage. David had courage. That's righteousness, but David knew the righteousness came from the Lord or, or was the Lord. 
as we preached last week, and Scripture says, Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's our righteousness. He is what's right in us. Jesus is what's right in David. Jesus is always the story that God is telling. Maybe not the story that David is always telling, but Jesus is always the story that, that God is telling. Jesus is the great and perfect warrior who defeats the prince by his powers, tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, and frees humanity from the prison that is ourselves. Next verse. You delivered me from strife with the people. And, and David was a people, right? You, you made me the head of the nations, the goyim, that's the Gentiles. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Is, is this David talking or somebody else? Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. David knew this. Deuteronomy, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And we've learned that God's vengeance is God's mercy poured out on, on the cross. The blood is fire and the fire is the blood. David's talking, but, but is it only David that's talking? The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man, not men, the man of violence, the humanity of violence. God, you know, God delivered Jesus from his enemies by turning his enemies into his friends. For this, because you delivered me from the man, I will praise you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, the nations, and sing to your name. Is it David that conquers the Gentiles, becomes the head of the Gentiles, and then sings hallelujah through those very Gentiles that he conquered? Next verse. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his Mashiach, the Messiah, to David and his seed, singular, forever. Did you get that? Did you see what happened? It's like the right thing in David is Jesus in David. It's like the righteousness that's talking in David in the Psalms is actually the Messiah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that this is the secret of the Psalms, that when we get to a Psalm that we just cannot utter, or David cannot utter, we must realize that we're listening to Christ praying to his Father in David, and even in us. Now, that may sound incredibly fanciful to you, like, oh, that's an easy way out. It may sound fanciful to you, but not to St. Paul, Romans 5.19. Paul quotes this very, the verse we just read, verse 49 of this psalm, as if it were Jesus that was speaking. This is what he writes. I tell you, says Paul, Christ became a slave in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, and now he quotes the psalm, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. According to Paul, it's Jesus that's talking, at least in that verse in Psalm 18. See, Paul seems to believe that ever since the fall, we've all been telling our own stories, exalting ourselves, 
And in this way, we create our own hell. But the word of our Father descends into this world and even into our hells such that a right choice in us is Jesus in us. He lives his life in us. I know that just seems crazy, but I've had some weird mystical encounters where I realized that was, that was true. I think the first time it happened to me, I was praying for a friend who was just suffering immensely and God was doing amazing things. She was falling apart in my arms. I'm, I'm holding her as she just sobs over and over again, crying to, to Jesus, why won't you hold me? Why won't you hold me? Why won't you hold me? And I didn't know what to say to her. And I remember I just said, why don't you ask Jesus? Why won't you hold me? And so she did. She said, Jesus, why won't you hold me? me and then she turned and looked at me and she said Peter I just heard Jesus say I am I don't think that means that Jesus just used my body I think it means that Jesus was the very thought in my mind that said you ought to give her a hug Jesus is your righteousness and the story that your father is telling. So when the Lord bows the heavens and comes down with thick darkness under his feet, when he parts the channels of the sea and the foundations of the earth are laid bare, when he speaks his word saying, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself, I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy, you are not a bad girl. I am your father and you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You say, Yes, I am your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. That's not arrogance. That's agreeing with the story that your father is telling. At the start I ask, how is Dia to know which story is true? the evil warlord's story or his father's story? Well, I don't think Dia or us, I don't think we are supposed to know which story is true. Until first we answer this question. Which story do I want to be true? You see, that's what the father cares about. Not whether or not you believe he exists. I mean, geez, that's got to be the easiest thing for God to solve, right? Not whether or not you believe Jesus, God exists, but whether or not you, you, you want him to exist. And whether or not you want to be the story that he's telling. In other words, I think he wants you to agree with your own creation. He creates us with his word and he even creates our desire to be created. He creates our faith with grace, his story of grace. And so his word in flesh took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. He is your life. 
He is the light with which the Lord lights your lamp. He's the light in the lamp that is you. He's your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And by coming to this table, you're saying, yes, Father, this is who I am. Amen? Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. And they are both your life. So you get it? He's the light in your lamp. <laughs> he told you to do this in remembrance of him. And it means this, your sins are forgiven you. And you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. To believe the Father's word is not arrogance, it's humility. It's to confess, yes, Lord God, whatever is is because you say it is through your word. So, when you tell yourself your own story, I mean, when you think you create yourself, when you exalt yourself, you create hell. But when you tell yourself the story that your father is telling you, he exalts you to heaven. And when you tell yourself everything is happening to me, Everything is happening to me because he likes me. Well, then heaven is here. It's arrived. Well, anyway, there's one other really fascinating thing about uh, Psalm 18. I just want to mention it. I asked, the, they, they, everybody questions, well, when was that day when the Lord delivered David from the hand of Saul and all his enemies? It's interesting that Psalm 18 is quoted in its entirety. It's put on the lips of David in 2 Samuel 22. And the following verse reads, Now these are the last words of David. Maybe the day that the Lord rescued David from all his enemies was the day he died. The last enemy to be destroyed is, is death, writes Paul. Maybe it was the day he died, and speaking theologically, that was also the day that the son of David, Jesus the Christ, died the day that the Lord delivered David from all his enemies, including himself, was the day that Jesus cried, it is finished, and delivered up his spirit. For you, that's already happened. So may you continually tell yourself the story. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.